Hello, hello, welcome to our Drop the STEM podcast. Let's welcome Siddharth Ananta, founder and president of Seeing for the Blind, that creates products to help visually impaired people navigate. He's also the founder of Kitty by Robotics program, and as an RSI 2019 scholar, during the summer, Siddharth conducted research in MIT Aero Astrolab on a short takeoff electric air taxi. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, he founded an online educational platform, Helm Learning, helping everyone learn more. Siddharth is literally a student Ignite speaker, renowned speaker on both national and international platforms, such as the Boston Accessibility Conference or the Empower Conference, India's largest accessibility conference. A Conrad Innovator, a National Honor Society member, and he's also an award winner of numerous entrepreneurial and research-oriented competitions. So, hi Siddharth, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now let's go back and back to the beginning, just as Hilary Dove said in her song in the early 2000s. And I'm intrigued to hear what kindled your interest to step into the STEM fields. Yeah, so I think the way it really started for me when I was, I was about, I think, one years old. And I was in a uh, grocery store in Texas and I bought a, a toy model plane. I don't know why I picked a toy model plane. I don't exactly know what sparked the interest in it, but I brought it home and I just kept playing with it every single day. Soon that one model plane turned into two model planes and then three model planes and four model planes. And soon when I was about three years old, I was building these airports on the living room floor, flying it on planes like a small toddler and landing them and parking them at gates. And anyone could look at this and just dismiss it as, hey, this is just a small kid playing with his toys. But it was more than that for me. These airports, these model airports that are building, they were real replicas of real ones. I became obsessed with making sure the details of everything were exact. And I kept making, I looked at the different model planes I had, and I noticed how each plane looked different. Some planes had four engines, some had two. Some wings went up, some were flat. I realized that the planes were so different, and I became committed to understanding every detail about them and understanding how they all worked. When I flew my planes, I was making that whooshing sound with my mouth, but I make different whooshing sounds for different engines and different planes. I made different announcements on the speak, I pretend to be a pilot and make different announcements, but they would all be different for each plane. And I would try to understand how every single one of these worked. And it, I think it was through playing with my model planes uh, that I realized how much I loved aviation and aerospace. And looking at that, that's how I became so committed and so obsessed with STEM. It was mainly just through my love for aviation. Those games in your early childhood eventually became real life toys and you could also conclude mathematical correlations based on whether that plane has two or four engines. And that really is true that those early memories can spark your interest. And we're going to expand on the whole piloting phase and how you poured into that field. But um, now a really important initiative that I would like you to expand on is Seeing for the Blind. You're the founder and president of it. So can you tell more about how your invention can improve the lives of visually impaired people? Just a bit of context for this. Um, this invention, I got the inspiration of, doing, of building this when I was on a trip back to relatives in India, and I saw a blind woman on a train, and she was basically having her cane and hitting it against people, chairs, and luggage. She was, she was having a very difficult time finding her way. And when I saw this, I thought that there must be some better technology out there than, other than just the canes that blind people use. And when I researched this later on, I realized that there is technology out there that, are, that is more advanced and uses cameras and machine learning to help the blind see, except they're, none of them are very comprehensive. And all of them are too expensive for people to use. Uh, the majority, 90% of all blind people live in third world countries. And even then, the people who live in Western countries who are blind or on 10%, not everyone can afford the expensive technology. So what I wanted to do was create a device that was better than the expensive technology. It was more comprehensive and user-friendly, but at the same time, it was also much more uh, inexpensive and cheap so that people of all income backgrounds all across the world can use it. So I created Seeing for the Blind. The way this device works, it's just a pair of glasses that you the user will wear on their head. And on the pair of glasses, there is a ultrasonic rangefinder or a sonar and a camera. And as you walk around, the sonar will keep taking distance measurements of, between, of the user wearing the device and objects around it. And it will then give off this beeping sound 
to alert the user of how far away they are from an object. The idea is that as you walk towards or away from an object, that beeping sound will change. And through that, you can kind of understand your relative distance towards uh, around different things. And knowing that, you can then know where things are around you. And that while it's useful to know where things are, you don't know what specifically those objects are. So what I, the second thing that I did was I created a, um, an object identification system where a camera also attached to the glasses would take continuous images of the user's surroundings. And then through a machine learning algorithm, it will then identify the names of those objects in the surroundings and read them out to the user. And so this gave a combination in one device that was never really there before. It not only allowed users to know both where objects are around them, but it also allowed them to know what those objects are. And through this, they were able to have a much more comprehensive understanding of what their surroundings are. While this device is technically much more advanced than the, than the competition, the best part is that it's much uh, more inexpensive. I was using materials that are much cheaper. They're very open source and easy to get. You can buy all the products on Amazon. It's easy, easy to get all the devices, the components, and all the components in total cost only $90. So you can assemble this device for a very cheap price and have it still be better than virtually any other product in the market. Sounds awesome. And it really is true that navigation presents an everyday challenge for people who live in both third world countries and in more developed and modernized regions. I can really attest to the fact that um, I've been to many science fairs as participant or being someone who walks around the projects and I could see a lot of products, but what is unique about your product that you created something that is variable on an everyday basis, it's easy to put on. Exactly. I guess it's yeah, economically yeah. viable as well. So it's, it's not as expensive as those other solutions you've mentioned before. The other thing is that uh, the good thing about this device is that it's made to be as intuitive as possible. And the reason is because most blind people are actually blind after birth. So they're used to using their head, moving their head around to see, and then they become blind afterwards either due to some uh, disease like macular degeneration or glaucoma or just some accidents that may happen. And because of this, the device is built on the glasses to be as intuitive and user-friendly as possible because the user is used to already turning their head around to see. So by having it on the glasses, it's the best possible interface for a blind user. Let's say perhaps a, a person is walking on the street, a visually impaired person and a car is approaching. What's the right. minimum length of distance at the time when the sensor is gonna say a car or something that is approaching or is gonna give them a signal? So what's the sensitivity rate of your product? The, I guess there are two different options you could have. One is the object identification system recognizing it. And in that case, the car could be around 20 feet away, as long as there's decent and left lighting for the camera to work. If the car is 20 feet away, the object identification system can tell you there's a car there. And the other um, most critical part is the ob uh, distance detection system, which will tell you distance. And if a car is around, is just six meters away from the user, it will, it will automatically start alerting the user of that object very smart location program and it's no wonder why you won eleven thousand dollars at the diamond challenge to eventually uh, fund your company in testing a product receiving feedback is uh, second to none how did your trip to several hospitals in india improve that aspect you said that you received the inspiration there and you circulated back to the initial point to eventually test the product that you developed to counteract that problem this past summer what i did was i went back to india i was working in partnership with a nonprofit called vision aid and what we were doing is we were testing the device in different hospitals and trying to get user feedback to see how successful the device is. And what I noticed was that uh, a lot of the things that I thought were going to be these really uh, groundbreaking, new and innovative ideas that would uh, that everyone would love really turned out to be just overcomplicated uh, pieces of technology that people didn't really need. For example, the object identification system, which would basically read out the names of objects around the user. Well, I thought this was the most innovative part of the entire device. What I realized was that for certain people, that was too confusing for them. Certain people, they just wanted to turn off the object identification at some points and just rely on just distance measurement. When they wanted to know what the objects were, they could just press a button and it would tell them. They didn't want, they didn't want it to be uh, this constant system. And what I also noticed was that a lot of these uh, functions that I did to preserve, to basically uh, maximize battery life and make this uh, a device that can be worn for several days, those were also not taken as well. They thought 
we don't really want uh, devices that are overcomplicated, that are heavy and clunky. Even if they have all these features, we just want it to be as simple as possible. And that's something that I realized uh, pretty quickly after doing that. And now I'm actually creating a the next prototype of this device. And it's much more simple in a much smaller form factor. The idea is that all you do is if you just press one button, the device just works. There's no other, no additional work you need to do. You just press one button and it works simply uh, without having to do any extra work. That really is the difference between the alpha version and real life application and further development um, that they don't need the, the constant system of saying out loud the words, but they can have this more personalized experience relying on autonomy and self-reliant decision making to help them navigate. So congratulations on that work and the patent. Oh, thank you. Yes. And you also founded KT Bytes Robotics Program in 2017. And I'm interested to hear how did it develop over the years? KT Byte is actually a, uh, a private um, computer science school. It's a, uh, a school based in Boston that teaches free, on, not free, teaches online uh, computer science classes to um, students across the country and even I think internationally as well. And uh, I actually took computer science classes there when I was a kid. And after building my device, Seeing for the Blind, I realized that there was potential for me to spread what I learned about this device with others. So I built my device using Arduino, which is an open source kind of microcontroller that you can program to do different things. After, after building this device, I realized the promise of how amazing Arduino is and how many cool things you can build with just using this tiny microcontroller and a few lines of code. So what I did was I approached this um, the school that was basically having instructors from computer science degrees from Cornell, CMU, and Stanford. And I said, hey, can I teach this as a 10th grader? Can I teach Arduino to students? And fortunately, they agreed with that. And they basically gave me a, a two-hour slot on a Saturday to teach an in-person class in Arduino. So I started this really small class with just three or four students. And I just kind of gave them small tutoring on how to use Arduino. And slowly, more and more students started coming. And as they came, we, um, we started to grow this into something that was much larger than it was originally. Uh, instead of just teaching basic Arduino stuff, we started experimenting with this and telling the students to start building their own inventions using Arduino. Uh, this, one of these included um, a firefighting robot, which, using, which basically uh, patrols a, the hallways of a house and is constantly using um, an infrared sensor to find heat. And when it finds heat and a light source, it can then assume that that might be a fire and it will automatically drive towards that suspected fire and using a built-in hose, it will put out the fire. And this robot is really tiny. It can fit in, it can fit in just your hands. But this device was basically made to um, put out fires before, before they turn into large house fires. Uh, another invention include uh, rovers that go and clean air vents. They, you put them inside a, uh, in a ventilation system and using an onboard vacuum cleaner, you just it automatically just goes through an air vent and picks up all the dust within the, the vents. And we basically kept continuing to grow this from a small class that was teaching uh, Arduino inventions to a larger program. After the first year of teaching this, my students and I, we went to the National Invention Convention where all three uh, grand prize awards were won by KT White students. And after that, we realized how uh, much excitement there was with these with these students in building these devices. And I realized that this was really, it really could have been the end of the line. These students would have been inspired by uh, Arduino and inventions and STEM, but I mean, they'll graduate and go on to do other things. So instead, I wanted to create more opportunities for them to really explore STEM and really grow their potentials. I ended up creating a framework where the students can then go and become TAs for, my, for these classes. And then they can become their own teachers and start their own programs. And growing from just one small class with six students, we have now grown to a program of over 12 classes with a staff of over 20 teachers and TAs who are all former students who are now teaching students to build inventions using Arduino, Raspberry Pi, Python, app design, and other uh, coding languages. And now we're grad we have over 250 students, I think close to 300 now, who have gone through our classes, are learning computer science and STEM, and are building their own inventions. It's impressive and amazing inventions have been born out of the work that you poured into KTBite. And I really like the fact that, of course, you got to have the professional expertise, but also the confidence to step out and say that, hey, I can teach Arduino basis to Cornell and STEM for students and look what has been born out of it. 
Exactly, yeah. The fact that you created a framework pipeline of teachers, um, of former exactly, students, yeah. is similar to oxidative stress when the molecule gives away electrons and creates extra space and that additional environment lures in more. So I guess it's going to become handy when you're going to go to college and be bombarded with coursework. Yeah. Is it your year of college applications? Um, yeah, I'm a senior right now, so I'm graduating. What's your top choice? As of right now, I'm committed to the University of Michigan for aerospace engineering. Now I'm turning you on um, so that everything will go smooth and fine with the college app process and hopefully you'll be able to attend in real life <laughs> not, <laughs> not <laughs> at Zoom University. Applying for a patent and creating a business can propose a daunting challenge to many. What do you think, what would be your tips be to those who wish to get into the startup or entrepreneurship circulation? So I think that um, in the world of startup or entrepreneurship, they're really two types of people there. There are entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurs are people who are really committed and dedicated to the product that they are trying to create. They're really dedicated to the mission and they'll devote hours and they'll devote their life just to seeing this goal come to fruition. And the entrepreneurs are people who are excited about the hype of the of entrepreneurship, but aren't willing to take the risks and tasks to and all the diligence to work out the problems. I think in order to really succeed with innovation, startup, entrepreneurship, you have to be willing to do the diligence and the determination and the work that is needed to really build your idea. Now, anyone can come up with an idea, but the amount of work you need to build it into something that people want to use, that amount of work and that diligence needs to be taken. That's the real uh, uh, separating factor, the real difference. If you're willing to do all the work to take your idea, for example, with my invention for the glasses, I thought about the idea, but I didn't, but I made sure that I built something that people wanted to use. I built multiple prototypes, tested them, got more feedback. People completely destroyed the idea, said it was horrible, went back to the drawing board, redid the idea, came back and then redeveloped it, retested it and kept going on and on and on. And eventually after four years of hard work, now we're reaching the point where the device might actually be a final product that people can use. Uh, if you are willing to have that determination and take on all that hard work and invest a lot of time into it without any foreseeable gain, then I think that commitment and that passion is what will bring you uh, success in entrepreneurship. I really like the concept of entrepreneurs and I agree with that on many levels because when we look at sports people, outstanding you know, football players, you can see that they stick to short-term sufferings to achieve long-term enjoyment. And I think consistency exactly. is really the key here, just as you said. And the fact is that to a lot of researchers, still, the entrepreneurial mindset is so distant. But there are a lot of similarities between the two, just as you've elaborated on the fact that we fail, we try, we experiment, and then try again. So it's a whole other circle. I think that really that difference in taking up the initiative to uh, really put in the passion and effort into this idea is really what is going to make you, it's going to separate you. And I think that everyone really has that passion and if, and you may not have a, and if you have an idea and you're not passionate about it, I don't think it's worth for you to devote all this time and effort to doing it. Find an idea that you really love, something that you really want to see succeed and then devote your time into that. So don't try to, put effort into something that you don't really believe in. Yeah, we all remember, I do remember from my high school years, you know, those homeworks that you hated working on, but you had to do it. But when it's <laughs> about a startup, that's your real life homework that you actually want to achieve and do. So exactly. in terms of putting your passion into real life practice, I guess you connected to RSI because you were chosen as one of 50 students in the US to attend the Research Science Institute. First, start off with the professional side. In regards to your research work, how is it possible to achieve super short takeoff and landing? Right. So this was my research project that I was actually working on with um, some grad students at MIT or Astro. And what we were doing there was we were trying to find a solution to the urban air mobility market. Now, urban air mobility is basically these, um, the idea that instead of driving in, in a car from for example, the suburbs to the airport or the city, and sort of, instead of spending hours in traffic, 
you can have these small uh, four-seater electric air taxis that can just fly you there. So kind of like how helicopters are, but we're trying to make this a much more uh, energy-efficient solution to the uh, helicopter transit market so that people can really just call an Uber Air and it will take them from point A to point B within a city. Now, the existing issue is that vertical takeoff or VTOL, like helicopters, they're very energy inefficient, but aircraft that take off horizontally, like a normal plane, they're much more energy efficient. The issue is that in order to take off, you need space. And the idea is that if you want to take off from the roof of a skyscraper, you don't have a lot of space. So what we were trying to do was uh, design an aircraft that use a specific wing design that would achieve a super short takeoff and landing. Or in other words, you want to get into the air as fast as possible. And using the lift equation, there are two possibilities to use. You can either use speed to get us in the air or the coefficient of lift. The coefficient is basically, a, uh, it tells you the lift producing properties of a certain design or wing design of the aircraft. And what we tried to do is build a certain wing design called a blown lift wing that um, maximizes the coefficient of lift by uh, using specific characteristics to deflect airflow and increase lift. So what we ended up doing was we uh, tested this new type of blown lift design and from this, we were able to show that um, this aircraft was able to produce a high coefficient of lift at high motor speeds and flap deflection and mid-flap deflection angles. And what it showed us is that there is promise for an aircraft that can take off in a very short distance. And given the right conditions, we can get a, a small four-seater plane into the air within just 50 feet. That really is amazing. So it's going to totally change the way we look at transportation in the future. Talked about Uber, Uber up in the air. Are there any calculations how much it would cost, I don't know, going a one hour long distance flight? I'm not entirely sure what the calculations would be. Uh, most of the technology is, is so new and uh, basically just fresh on the market that there really hasn't been enough time to develop and see the cost. Um, I will say that Uber is currently using a helicopter service in New York City. So New York is notorious for its traffic. But if you want to go from downtown Manhattan to JFK Airport, uh, the, you can either take a regular Uber car and it's like an hour and a half drive and it costs like, what, $200 to go. Or you can also take a Uber helicopter that would be, is basically chartered through a, a helicopter company called Blade. And these helicopters will just take off from Manhattan and take you directly to the airport. And I think that sometimes during rush hour, the helicopter is actually a cheaper option than taking an Uber car. So the I think a seven, five to seven minute ride in a helicopter is already around $200. Uh, I think with electric vertical takeoff, electric quadcopters, that could probably, price could possibly be driven down to maybe around 100, 150. But with SSTO or the short takeoff aircraft, that could possibly be driven down to maybe... Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but, but, but I think maybe below $100 for uh, short 10-minute flights, that could be possible. Wow, there really is a big change. Just to clarify the visualization, of course, we are recording in audio. But for the listeners out there, basically, you are changing the way that the horizontal lines are becoming more vertical in that sense. It needs to have enough lift to get into the air, and your lift has to basically be greater than your force of, uh, than your weight, or the or gravity just pushing you down, or gravity pulling you down. So force of lift has to be much stronger. And the idea is in order to maximize lift, or in order to get enough lift in a very short amount of time, what we can change is the coefficient of lift, which is basically just the, um, which is a, has to do with the design of the aircraft. And it basically tells you how much a, it's a non-dimensional coefficient that tells you how much lift this is expected to produce. And by changing the design, we can change that coefficient. And through that, we can actually ma increase lift. So if you run the engine, the propellers for a shorter amount of time, we can get lift in a very short amount of time. And once you have that lift, we can get into the air. I see. So it's kind of similar in biological concepts when structure is closely related to function. And that is translated into aircraft design as well. There was yeah, a... Yeah precursor to this work as well. Could you elaborate on the problems you were focused on to solve at MIT Aero Astros Lab, the same lab um, you worked in in 2019? In 2018, I worked in an MIT Aero Astro Lab again on a, a project called the Jungle Hawk Owl. And what we were doing in that project was we were trying to build a, uh, a long range communications drone. And the idea was that if you have a hurricane that basically knocks out all the communications 
uh, all the cell towers within a, uh, a certain region. For example, um, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico a few years ago. The idea is that you can basically take a small, you can take a drone. I wouldn't say it's small, but you can take a drone and you can continue flying it above a, um, a certain region. And if you put a cell tower inside the drone, you can beam cellular service down to that region. So you can basically have a kind of mobile temporary cell tower. Um, the idea is kind of similar to uh, Google Balloon, where they launch these high altitude weather balloons and just float them around regions and beam cell service down. So the issue is that those balloons, you can't really control them. They just kind of float around with the wind. Whereas this is an actual plane that you can control and maneuver around a certain area. But we were trying to basically work on several software issues on the aircraft and uh, kind of wrap up the project. So I came at the, I joined the team at the very end of the project. And some of my work involved um, building part of the navigation system for the drone so that when the pilot is flying the plane, they can actually see the plane on a map and they can see these geofences around our accepted testing area. So we know where we are allowed to fly in and where we're not allowed to fly in. And we can see when well we have to um, return to the base or when we have to uh, abort our mission based on seeing where our geofences are set for that day. Because the uh, US Army and Air Force are pretty strict on uh, where you can and cannot fly. And then some other things that I was working on was um, building a, a data visualization soft, uh, program where if you have different payload weights, uh, the aircraft dimensions are, are the most optimal aircraft dimensions are different based on different weights. So what I did was I worked with a software that uh, would take, would basically take different payload weights and create different dimensions for that are most optimal for the aircraft. And I made a code that would basically draw out these dimensions on a, a 2D graph, on a 2D image and show what exactly the aircraft would look like. So you can use this for easy comparison. Really interesting. So you subsequently worked on two projects, one that was collecting in flight data for the US Air Force, and then right. the dimensional optimization, yeah. visualization. Yeah, exactly. When it comes to research for during your high school experience, I would be interested to hear what were some of the takeaways you during your professional work at the lab because um, I remember when I was a high school student and I went to university and working at right now it was kind of intimidating at its initial points but then you kind of get into the circulation how was your experience at the Air Astro Lab? I kind of had a pretty similar experience it's very intimidating um, I ended up actually working with this professor who was one of the most world world's most renowned professors for aerospace. Um, he would frequently have meetings with top officials and uh, industry experts who would ask him for consulting on their projects. And it was incredibly, um, incredibly uh, scary to uh, actually work with him. And I think the first day that I met him, I was like shaking because he was just such a, uh, a very well-renowned and famous, famous uh, professor. But um, I think, what really kind of helped me through this intimidating process was uh, just having this continuous passion for what I was doing. Uh, I took, did aerospace, I did work in aerospace for two summers and I had never taken a physics class before then. My physics classes I am taking right now, that's what's mandated by the school. You take it in a, your final year of high school. And during that research, I never took a physics class. I basically didn't really understand much of how things were working, but I think that because I just had this passion, I just loved everything about them. I just try to figure out ways to explain it to myself that without knowing any physics would make sense. So that force of lift, coefficient of lift, I just had tried to understand it in the uh, in a pure and simple form of just trying to imagine planes flying and see how they work. And I had never learned about forces or momentum or uh, drag or uh, drag. I understood drag in a really uh, mathematical way, but the way I just try to imagine it by using uh, passion and love for aerospace, that's kind of the way that I was able to get through that. So while it was very intimidating, I think that if you're passionate, if you're passionate about something, you'll be able to, um, you'll be able to pursue it well. So true. And you took a plunge and even though you had not taken a physical class at a the time, there's a difference because there are people who have been in the business for a while and they have a lot of data points, but they still cannot extrapolate from them because they still view it as a job and not a profession they are passionate about. And I think that really sets you apart. And I think if you have both that technical knowledge and that passion, you're going to go great places in life. Of course, you don't want chaos in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. In terms of RSI, what memorable moments would you include in your mental RSI highlight reel? 
I think the most memorable moment was just kind of being together in this community of people who are really passionate about uh, about what they're doing and their research. I think that's really the, the best takeaway I had from RSA is that no matter who was there, no matter how different all of you were, you're more similar than you are different. Everyone was working in things like uh, mathematics and quantum physics and cancer biology, and I understood none of that stuff. But we, the passion we shared for the science and the STEM and the research we were doing, just the uh, pure um, raw energy and emotion that we felt for our topics, that's what bonded us together. We really came together by enjoying what we were doing and loving everything and not being afraid to just spend hours in the night at the lab working or spend hours and hours working on papers. We would spend, take all-nighters all the time and just bond together and enjoy what we're doing and work on our research and really live and love that experience. The all-nighters and the long shirt conversations <laughs> and a reoccurring concept and the thing I hear from RSI scholars. So that really bonds you together and well, kind of changes your metabolism, but you got to do it for the RSI experience. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you had time to explore Boston and the area, go somewhere sightseeing. I actually live in Boston, so I... Yeah, I, I had a feeling. I, I just wanted to make sure where we are geographically. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I live in Boston. I'm only 20, I'm 20 minutes away from Cambridge and, down, and downtown Boston. But um, I think even exploring the city with the RSI people, I realized that there is so much more to Boston that I've never seen before. So there's this really famous street called Newbury Street, which for some reason I just had never gone to after living in Boston for like 12 years. And um, we went there with RSI, we just had lunch there. And I just remembered seeing this new gem of a place that I now go to throughout the year. And I love that place so much. But um, I, I think I, it was surprising that I never knew these places in Boston existed and through these gems that I was able to figure, uh, discover them. Then it's become your RSI spot in the town or in the city. Exactly, yes. <laughs> of course, I was kind of wondering because I didn't hear the enthusiasm in your voice about exploring Boston, you know? <laughs> and Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew the area pretty well. <laughs> yeah, the familiarity effect came in. But, but that's cool that you found a spot for yourselves. We've been circulating around this topic but have not fully dived deep into it. That's why I'm interested in what gave you eventually wings to fly and pour into real life piloting. That's a, a good question and unfortunately I don't know the clear answer. I don't know how I fell in love with aviation. I don't even know exactly why I really like aviation. I just it's just this inherent feeling and just this passion that I've just kind of felt since the beginning, since since I was since as long as I can remember. I think the earliest thing I can remember, specifically with the aviation and planes, was when I was I think I was I was five at the time. And I was with my family and we were going to um Australia to meet our uh, relatives. And I just landed in, in Sydney, Australia and it was a very early morning flight and we were taxiing to the gate. This was around 2008, and in uh, 2008, Airbus had just released the brand new um, Airbus A380, which is a double-decker airplane that is the largest uh, passenger capacity plane in the world. And at the time, there was only one plane in the market, and it was Singapore Airlines, who flew the plane from Singapore to Sydney. And as we were taxiing to the gate, I just remember seeing that plane and losing my mind. And that was the first time I'd ever seen an A380. I'd never seen a plane that big before, and I just absolutely went crazy and fell in love with that and I just remembered as everyone was getting off the plane I just kept standing like pressing my hand face against the window and just looking at the plane and not wanting to leave because it was just such an amazing sight I don't know what specifically drew me to that plane itself but what do we or what do we to planes in general but just the it's just the feeling of how these wings will flex ever so slightly when they take off, how the, the sum of the engines, the vibrations you feel when, when you're inside it, the uh, feeling of that acceleration when you suddenly get, when you suddenly start going down the runway and you get into the air and you feel that weightlessness, all of those feelings, everything about them, it just kind of makes me love aviation and makes me love planes so much. I don't know what's the reason, but I, it's just something that's inherited, so I guess it's coded into my DNA. Yeah, it was love at first sight with a double-decker. Exactly, yeah. A part I want to touch on, that you actually flew with Professor Hansman, 
from MIT Aero Astro Lab. What was that flight experience all about? It was amazing, actually. Uh, I got to, um, we, we were uh, going to um, meet with a, uh, an airline. I don't know how much detail I can give, but we were going to meet with an airline to uh, discuss a new and upcoming technology. And to go there, instead of just driving, the professor took us up in his um, Cessna Trail Dragger, this nice old vintage aircraft that was an absolute uh, beauty to fly. It was one of the most amazing planes uh, I've ever seen in my life. It was a very stable aircraft, and it was just a, an amazing experience of flying that, and especially flying with one of the greatest um, aerospace experts in the world. It was just amazing to see his insight in aviation and flying and everything he had to offer about uh planes, aerospace, and just aviation in general. What a unique journey. Not many people can, can tell that. Amid the COVID pandemic, you founded HALM Learning that helps young students gain knowledge across the states. And I popped on the website and already saw a few DTS alumni, such as Critic and Jay, on the teacher's palette. Yeah. So I was glad to see familiar faces. But could you expand on the initiative to the listeners? As the uh, COVID pandemic basically kind of shuts down all of normal life, we're pretty much stuck at home. We're here without many of the things we all would otherwise have. Now, I don't know what the situation is in Europe or around the world, but I know that in the US, the um, the way that schools have been moving to online learning has been uh, incredibly disorganized and um, not ununited whatsoever. So some schools immediately switched to having Zoom classes online. Some schools just completely shut down and said there's no more school for the rest of the year. Some are in a hybrid cross where they're kind of giving some assignments through emails, but now having actual classes. The whole system is disorganized. No one's doing the same thing. And what it does is it leaves students sitting at home without a real real education to have. And I know for myself, at least, and for others, we were inspired in the classroom by watching science documentaries, by doing these science labs, or by just learning math equations or reading about history and hearing these stories. We were inspired in the classroom, and that's how we found our passion. But now, if there's no school, we can't find that, have that same inspirational opportunities to find these passions and things that we love. So. That one issue that we have the students who are out of school, and the other issue that we now have these teachers, or otherwise these high school students who's, uh, who have been spending so much time working on research and STEM projects and other conventions and uh, competitions like ISEF and Regen RNSTS have been canceled. And, this, and basically what I wanted to do with Helm was I wanted to connect teachers who are passionate about what they're working on, what, they're, what they've been working on and learning and researching. And I wanna be able to have them share it with students who want to be uh, inspired and uh, and want to find new and interesting topics that they can pursue later on. So what we did is we founded Helm Learning. My brother and I co-founded Helm Learning, where we first started teaching basic computer science classes, including like Python and Arduino. And we slowly grew into having uh, many different classes that people could take. Um, one of these include uh, microbiology, which is taught by Jay Iyer, where he talked about bacteriophages, uh, viruses, CRISPR, and explain how the coronavirus works. Another one was uh, economics, where this one teacher would explain economics of the coronavirus and explain to young kids why people are rushing to the stores to buy toilet paper, why the prices for milk and eggs are suddenly so high. And there are other classes that are just fun to do, like photography, go outside and during, during quarantine, go outside and take pictures of uh, trees and people in your house to keep yourself busy or learn about the wonders of the universe by understanding how black holes and supernovas work. And really what we wanted to do is we wanted to provide students with an interactive opportunity to work in small classes of no more than uh, 20 kids where they can interact one-on-one -on -one with a uh, experienced and distinguished teacher who loves what they're doing and wants to share their passion with others who are eager to learn. And through this, we have seen, we had people who are, have been inspired by these topics they're learning about. One student in particular, fell in love with microbiology and now wants to learn more about CRISPR and try to do more work with this in the future and research in high school. Another student is completely fascinated with astronomy and now wanting to uh, read more books about that and understand it even more. And I think the best part is that we're able to inspire people to want to do more with during this time, during COVID-19, and uh, take an initiative to share with others their passion and help others uh, learn and become inspired. Yes, I've looked at the website and you have, you really have a wide variety of classes to choose from, um, tackling different topics. And what I really liked about 
the website is it's just testimonials part because one of the parents wrote here that my year old loved it so much that he explained and read his code in python to every family member who would listen <laughs> and <laughs> it's in including the grandparents yeah including the grandparents it really shows the real life feedback and how kids are exhilarated and excited about the things they're learning on your platform exactly and i mean if anyone's interested in learning topics that they're passionate about or even teaching stuff that they're passionate about they can go to helmlearning.com h e l m learning no spaces or caps.com to sign up from sign up for class there's had to be a teacher Yes, get that shout out, but I'm going to also share it on the Drop the Stamp podcast Instagram to get the news out. Okay. In terms of in Europe, we kind of have a similar situation. So online learning platforms are on. I recently contributed to one YouTube channel teaching in organic chemistry packed with memes for high school students because mm -hmm. now they are writing actually their final examinations. So the system is quite different. We have it in May. And they don't have an oral one, just a written one this time. So it's become pretty hectic for them this year with wow. COVID and all. Well, I think in times of crisis, the best of people really show and those who are willing to innovate and adapt and create new solutions that uh, are otherwise non-existent are those who will really succeed. Absolutely. And now you have 250 Two. students. 250 students. I think now it's approaching after this weekend, we had more signups and I think it's approaching uh, 300 signups now. What features make Helm a unique online teaching platform? Pitch it to me. <laughs> I think um, there are, there's a wide spectrum of, uh, of online platforms. And I, you know, I think the, the different types are one, you can have one-to-one -one tutoring. So you just have one person talking directly to another student and they're tutoring them and walking them through, um, uh, how they're walking through a certain subject or maybe their math homework or something like that. And another aspect is on the other end of the spectrum, which is um, using one person to uh, and any number of people uh, through these online video lectures. People can pre-record video lectures uh, and basically post them on either YouTube, Coursera, MIT, edX. They post these online video lectures and people, anyone can basically go and watch them, but they're not interactive. And in the middle, we have something, we have something like Helm Learning, where instead of having like hundreds and thousands of students taking a course, or instead of having just one student taking a course, you have a small class of around 10 to 15 students, sometimes or even, it depends on the class size, around 10 to 15 students who are all interested in a certain topic and get to engage directly with the teacher about this top, topic. And they can not only, and they get to engage not only with the teacher, but also engage with each other and ask questions to each other and pursue this together. And I think that's what's different. I don't think one type of online education platform is better than the other. I think that um, they're good in their own ways. And I think for at least for Helm, our speciality is that we offer this uh, ability to be interactive, not only with the teacher, but with others, and also be very hands-on and creative. You definitely have to find your niche in that and right. be strong about one feature to really stand out from all other platforms. And I agree because when you enter a classroom, it's usually a one-sided conversation that I really dislike. And the more you engage with students, the more interested and intrigued they will become by the topic. As a distinguished public speaker, innovator, honor society member, what would your definition of success be? I think this is probably my favorite question because my definition is so different than others. I think the conventional definition of success would be to say, win everything and just go and win everything. And I think that's really just a misrepresentation. In reality, it is incredibly difficult to win and no one ends up actually winning everything. Most people, people, pretty much everyone fail 99% of the time. And it's only that one time that they win that is really covered. And you can say, well, there's always successful people out there like, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, who are really successful. But in reality, those people, they failed so many more times before, before they've actually uh, succeeded. And it's really just the, it's the failures that kind of brush under the carpet, but the success, successes are the ones that are publicized. But in reality, everyone fails more than they succeed. And I think that the definition of success is not to have more success, more wins than losses. The definition of success is to react differently to your failures and your, and your losses. 
instead of losing and failing or failing and becoming discouraged on what you're doing or uh, end up giving up and move and moving on to something else, I think what defines you as a successful person is to fail at something, but learn from the mistake, learn what went wrong, com- bring yourself, ba- compose yourself together again and get back up and keep working and continue with more power, more strength and work even harder than they did before. And if you fail again, you just get back up again and keep going even more. And if you fail again, you get back up again and you go more. And no matter what people say that it's a crazy idea, it won't work, or people keep discouraging you and telling you to give up, just block that all out. And if you're passionate and if you're determined enough in what you believe in, and you keep doing it again and again, you will end up finally reaching that one big break. You will make that success. And success isn't, once again, success is not about having multiple awards, winning all these things and doing everything properly, getting into the best college, getting this, uh, getting all these awards. Instead, what it's about is reacting to your setbacks in a way that makes you better as a person, but also better as a, as an innovator, entrepreneur, scientist, or whatever, and uh, gearing you more towards succeeding later on in the future. And I think that reaction and that just getting yourself back up that's what's going to make you really a successful person later on very great expansion of the topic and it really is true that you shouldn't listen to those external voices who are trying to bring you down because eventually small-minded people will not support your big dreams not fit into their perspectives just a serendipitous event the liked author's book dream big is coming out and I downloaded a preview and it just really resonated with what you said because he elaborated on the fact that there are people who are born with or they start with no money and some terrible circumstances and they achieve such success and they become these fulfilled and self-aware people. But they're also the ones who have good opportunities and endless possibilities, but they lead or absorb and self-absorbed life. So what really sets you right. apart is what you are doing with what you have and not looking at uh, what you necessarily do not possess. That drive and the motivation as well will set you apart. As if you could choose to have dinner with someone, anyone from the past or from the present time, who would you choose it to be? You have to be um, Steve Jobs. A really great speech he had at Stanford's commencement address in 2005. I was just watching it this morning. And I just kind of remembered how much I uh, love his story. Steve Jobs is someone I think who really inspires me because it has he has that um those uh, the same kind of qualities that I really admire. And I think that one thing is being able to get back up even after failure and just keep going. For those of you who don't know, Steve Jobs ended up founding Apple, and right when it became a big a big hit, he actually ended up getting kicked out of his own company and became lost. Just kind of in a state of limbo because he just created something that was so big and now he's now none of them want him back. And he ended up going and creating something that he felt would not really have any uh, significance in the short term, but um, he believed in the mission and he just kept funding money and devoting so much time and effort into that. And that actually ended with that company actually was Pixar animation that he didn't think would go anywhere in the short term, but because he believed in it, because he just wouldn't give up on it, even after people told him that it was a stupid idea, he kept devoting so much time and effort into it. And now Pixar uh, is one of the largest and most successful animation studios in the world. And I think that Steve Jobs is someone who I think really admires me because he has that drive to continue and do stuff even even if people tell him not to, even if they try to take him down and say that he should give up. He just doesn't care and he keeps going on and on and on. Yeah, that's resistance and persistence. Not looking lateral to decide who is cheering you on or not, but having that internal strength, a mental muscularity to to continue on. Exactly. We're going to do the this or that game section. So you got to choose Great. either or. And the first one is karaoke or a dance-off. Probably dance-off. I'm not very good at uh, singing. <laughs> Okay, you don't have to do it on the podcast to get the audio. (laughs) (laughs) The next one is computer or PC? I would say PC, like a laptop, yeah. Uh, And you stick to Apple? I have an internal feeling. Yeah, I I like Apple. (laughs) Video call or simple traditional call? Uh, Video call. And rock or pop? Uh, Probably pop. 
pop music, what would be your jam to dance, to do a dance off <laughs> to? Probably Kendrick Lamar's Mad City. That's a really nice song. It's a very energy filling song. South America or Australia in the situation, a hypothetical future destination? Okay. <laughs> um, probably South America. The Patagonias are a really beautiful place that I want to see. A very unique experience. What does science mean to you that really encapsulates all the fun stuff we've been talking about? For me, what science means is using math, technology, physical, pure science, art and engineering to really find and discover new things either that whether that be research or inventions or devices define discover build new things that can change the way people live their lives change the way the world is is run change the way that um the change the course of history to come basically uh i think i guess i'll bring it up again i think the I think best example I can think of off the top of my head is once again going with Steve Jobs. He, the iPhone probably is going to be the invention of at least the next half century because it is just something that never had been conceivable before or never even thought of before. But using, um, just using science, engineering, technology, art, and even art to create something that is just so innovative, so unique, and so different, that uh, that uh, combination of things ends up building something that um, really has changed the way the world works. Like, could you imagine yourself without iPhones or whether or smartphones with touchscreens? The whole world would be different. Our entire past, uh, I think, what is it, thirteen years has been shaped by this one invention. And I think. Being able to use, I think what science means to me is just using these different um, these different fields to create something that can really shape the way people live their lives and change the world. That's what science means to me. Very nicely put. And on the fact that whether you can imagine your life with or without a smartphone, there has been always an accessory that defined an age, chokers in the 90s or statement <laughs> necklaces, whatever. And I think now, especially in 2010s, because we've already passed that phase, uh, it would right. be the iPhone for sure. Definitely, yeah. Top accessory. And you can design it with several cases, so the possibilities are endless there. But it really is true that um, science, I think, still holds many surprises for us in the upcoming ages. I want to thank you on elaborating on your projects that are making a difference and for sharing all your good advice and perspectives on startups and how to make the most out of your life eventually. Oh, thank you for having me. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.